Well, it's a delight to be with you all today. I appreciate so much the elders here giving me the opportunity to remain over. I was looking forward to simply worshiping with you. wasn't expecting to preach, but uh, I'm honored to be able to do so. I know you just sat down, but I want to ask you to stand back up as we turn to our sermon text. It is found in your worship order. You can follow along there or in your Bibles or on the screen. It's Psalm 149. As we come now to hear God's word, let's bow and ask his blessing upon it and upon us. Gracious God and Father, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us as your people by means of it. Let the words of my mouth, though a fallible man, a fallible preacher, nevertheless, let those words uh, be your word, O God, guided by your spirit, and let the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Bless us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word, Psalm 149. Praise Yahweh. Sing to Yahweh a new song and His praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their Maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. Let them praise His name with the dance. Let them sing praises to Him with the timbrel and harp. For Yahweh takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all His saints. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Worship is warfare. And more specifically, biblical worship is an exercise of spiritual warfare against the wicked powers that are opposing the church in the present age. That is what we learn in Psalm 149 and in many other texts, some of which we will briefly mention today. The struggle between light and darkness is a worship war. Whether we will worship God or whether we will worship the creature instead of God. What I want to do today for just a few minutes is use Psalm 149 to introduce a theme that is pervasive in Scripture. We're not going to expound every line of Psalm 149, but what I hope we can do is use it as a jumping off point to show you a theme that is all through the Old and New Testaments, but that many Christians today remain ignorant of. And that theme is liturgical warfare. We think about liturgical churches, and we often think about churches that are cold and dead, right? Very empty. And yet, liturgy is inevitable. Liturgy is just service, Liturgy is just order, it's rhythm, it's worship. You have a liturgy here, whether you know it or not. You're a liturgical church. Every church is a liturgical church. I grew up in an explicitly non-liturgical church. They're one of the most liturgical churches I've ever been in, right? Because they have, they have the order that they do things in that they insist is not a liturgy. Well, liturgy is a type of warfare, That's what the Bible says to us, that as the church is praying and praising God, as the church is crying out in the name of Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are engaged in spiritual warfare, and God's will is being done, and God's kingdom is advancing through the church's praise and prayer. Now, when we think about worship wars, we usually think about styles of worship. You know, are we going to have a piano or a full band? 
Are we going to sing psalms and traditional hymns? Or are we going to sing only contemporary choruses? Or maybe some combination of the two. Is the pastor going to be wearing skinny jeans and be sure that his tattoos are prominently displayed? Or is he going to be wearing you know, a bow tie and a sweater vest? I feel very overdressed here this morning. But at home I wear a clerical collar and a robe, so I mean, you know, yeah. I didn't want to weird you out too much. These are the kinds of things that we think about when we talk about worship wars, right? We're thinking about the style. Is is the service going to be highly structured or is it going to be highly choreographed to appear spontaneous, right? These are the kinds of things that Christians debate and they discuss. And some of those issues are kind of important. I mean, like insofar as some of those conversations grow out of our view of God and our approach to God, and our sense of where we are in worship, what we're actually doing in worship, that, that can, that's an important part of that conversation. But in many ways, those conversations about style are the least significant conversations we ought to be having about worship. And it suggests that we still don't always understand what worship really is. Psalm 149 is a call to exuberant worship in the presence of God. It is offered by a people who know who they are and where they are and how great the God that they serve truly is. It is God-centered. It is offered in His presence. It's given to the one who will execute vengeance on the nations. That's a surprising part of worship in Psalm 149. You may think, I don't know, that doesn't sound very Christian, right? Doesn't the Bible say vengeance is wrong? No, the Bible says vengeance is the Lord's. And it says that when the church gathers together to pray and to praise God, they are actually participating in that vengeance that God, not the church, but God is bringing upon all of His enemies, subduing them to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the people who engage in this kind of worship are beautified by humility. They're beautified by God's grace. It's not their adoption of the world's standards of what is fashionable or what is good or what is appealing. That's not what makes the church beautiful. No, it's the beauty of holiness. And it's the beauty of knowing that we are a chosen people and a redeemed people and and that God came and drew us out of darkness and death into the marvelous light of His presence. They know that they belong to the kingdom of God which will outlast and overcome all nations of the present world. And Psalm 149 says that we are singing judgment against our foes. That we are praising God for the promise of justice that He will bring. It's not just a ritual in other words. We are truly rejoicing with sincere hearts. But it's not lighthearted either. It's not as if we are casually engaged in this or or kind of in in a flippant manner praising God in this way. No, we know that God will save His people through judgment. And we sing about what that will mean for the world. Now once we understand that, a lot of the conversations today around styles of worship rightly seem shallow. And and, and really just kind of missing, missing the point entirely. In many places, in many churches today, churches that love Jesus, praise God, that believe the Bible is God's Word, they are good, godly, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians, but you enter into their worship and you don't find anything like Psalm 149. You don't get the sense that you are in the presence of God. 
in the presence of the world's judge and punisher. You're singing a song that makes Jesus sound like your girlfriend, and it just doesn't, it doesn't fit with the tone of the psalms that you're reading. You'll be hard-pressed in many churches today to find fear and trembling associated with worship. We don't want people to be afraid. We don't want them to tremble. We want them to be comfortable. We want them to come back next week, right? We promise that you know, the pastor next week, he won't be wearing you know, a bow tie, right? Don't let that put you off. But, that's, but the service in Psalm 149, it's, it's arresting. It's arresting. The saints in Psalm 2 are told to rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Because of a sense of awe before God in whose presence we stand. The context today of worship in many places is very different, but also, and maybe even more so, the content is different. I mean, how many contemporary praise songs, many of which are, are beautiful and wonderful, and there's a the place for them perhaps in the church's worship, but how many of them have the theological range that we find in the Psalms? How many Psalms of lamentation? How many popular contemporary Christian imprecatory cries for justice do you find today? There are entire categories of church music and the church's historic worship that are altogether absent in much of the church's worship today, and that's only become more true in the last 150 years. And I believe that our worship is poorer as a result, but also our theological understanding is poorer, because as Martin Luther said, the the music of the church is the theology that people actually remember. It's not the systematic theology book that someone gave you for Father's Day or Christmas, you know, five years ago. It's still sitting on the bookshelf where, where you put it that day, right? It's the songs of the church that are communicating the theology that we actually believe in. You look at the the hymns and the psalms that we sang already this morning, there's rich truth there. Those are the songs that are going to be on your heart and on your mind throughout this week, and they should be. I want you to notice in our text in verse 6, the parallelism, the parallelism, let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hand. If you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you'll know that what makes it poetic is not not rhyme, it's not rhythm, it's parallelism. And this is an example of what we call synonymous parallelism. It's where you have two lines that are saying the same basic thing, but using different terms. And yet these two lines don't seem to say the same thing at all. I mean, verse 6, the high praises of God, let it be in the mouth of the church, and a two-edged sword in their hand. Oh my, oh my. Not a hymnal, not a psalter, right? Not just empty hands lifted up to the Lord, but a sword. A sword in our hand as we sing praise to God. And what are we going to do with that sword? Verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. If you understand the parallelism, what you you see is that the sword are the songs that we're singing. The high praises of God in our mouth is the sword that's in our hand. The sword by which we're executing vengeance against the nations is the praise of the church and the prayers of the church to the God who has made us for himself. And so we're not going to discuss this passage in detail, but what I do want to do is is use this passage to introduce this theme and then show you a number of other texts. We're We're going to read a lot of different passages today, and we're going to have to go through them very, very quickly. But once you see this idea, what I hope will happen is you will begin to see it all through the Scriptures. Once this idea captures your imagination, I hope 
and pray that for many of you, as for many of our members at home, this idea will capture and transform your daily prayer time and your family worship and your experience of and participation in the Lord's Day worship of the church such as we're gathered together today. So let me look at several passages with you just very briefly where this idea is revealed and illustrated. Some of them I'm going to read, some of them I'm only going to mention. You know the story in Joshua chapter 6, I'm sure, even if you don't know the chapter reference. It's the story of the conquest of the city of Jericho. The Lord instructs Israel to march around the city once each day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And as the people are marching around the city of Jericho, there are seven priests who are blowing trumpets. And there are the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And the rest of the men of war are following them around the city, marching in silence for an entire week. And after the seventh time around the city, on the seventh day, Joshua says, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. Walls are still standing. Doors are still closed. Jerichoans are still jeering from the top of the wall. And Joshua says, that's it. That's number seven of day seven. Shout. And the people shouted, and the walls of the city fell down. Now, I'm sure, some, sure someone could, you know, offer a naturalistic explanation of this, right? I remember when I was a kid, we had VHS tapes, right? We had a two-set uh, you know, two, two discs, it's not a disc, right? It's a tape, a two-tape set of explaining the miracles in the Bible, right? You probably have seen that, you know, where they explain that the place where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea was only like about six inches deep, and then they had this little fan and this little plastic dish and this little sand inside and a little bit of water, and they showed if the, if the wind blows at just the right angle, at just the right strength, and the, then the water kind of parts, and that's, that's how it happened, and You know, of course, then somebody says, praise God for the greater miracle. He drowned the whole Egyptian army in only six inches of water, right? (laughs) But there were were all of these explanations for that. So you probably have some kind of a naturalistic explanation for how the walls of the city of Jericho fell down, right? You know, the the seven days of marching, right? This big, big army, they're stomping their feet maybe, and there's stress fractures in the walls, and then the sonic vibration of their shout, you know. Or a lot of people are just going to say, this is just ah, historical mythology, right? It never really happened. It's just, it's just trying to teach you some kind of a, a, a good lesson, but it never actually happened. Well, no, the Bible says it happened. The Bible says God knocked the walls down. But how did he knock the walls down? He knocked the walls down after the church marched around the walls, praying and blowing trumpets for a week, and then shouting with victory, with joy, while the walls are still standing. That's what the church is doing every Sunday, by the way. You're, you're shouting that Jesus is king of all the nations, and you're looking around and going, I don't know about that. Pastor, did, did, have, you, have you seen the news lately? Like, Jesus is king of the nations? Are you sure about that? Yep. Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city, and the walls fell down. This isn't a military strategy. No commander would order something like this today. Jericho was the mightiest city in Canaan. Its walls were impregnable, but the city was overcome with worship. Look again at our original text, Psalm 149. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. The city walls 
fall. Let me take you to another passage. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, this is a longer reading. I won't ask you to forgive me because it's just such a wonderful story that there should be no forgiveness needed here. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, I'm going to read the first 24 verses. Listen carefully or follow along on the screen as we, as we read. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from Yahweh, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek Yahweh. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of Yahweh before the new court and said, O Yahweh, God of our fathers, Are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. If you mark in your Bible, you want to mark verse 12. You're going to need that prayer many times in your life. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before Yahweh. Then the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all you of Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says Yahweh to you, Do not be afraid, nor dismayed, because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of Yahweh who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for Yahweh is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise Yahweh, God of Israel, with their voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in Yahweh your God, and you shall be established. Believe His prophets, and you shall prosper." And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to Yahweh and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise Yahweh, for His mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, Yahweh set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had met an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. 
So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. Isn't that an awesome story? Yes. Yes, indeed. Judah faces this enormous army, a multitude that threatens their very existence. And maybe if the two armies had been similarly matched, maybe the Judeans would have been tempted to trust in their own military resources, their own military competence. But there was no possibility of that here. Jehoshaphat says, we can't stand before this multitude. It's, it's not possible. This is, these are impossible odds. We don't know what to do. We don't have any plan. We don't have any strategy. Nobody's got an idea. But Lord, our eyes are on you. This is how Jehoshaphat prepares the people for battle. He prays. He prays God's promises back to him. That's why we read so much. You need to understand, what is Jehoshaphat saying? He's not just saying, Lord, help me. He's saying, Lord, we are your people. Your temple is here. This is the inheritance that you gave to us. The possession is yours. These are the people that we spared in obedience to your word. They are defying that treaty of peace. And you, Lord, need to do something about it. He's praying God's promises back to them. And then he organizes the army, but he organizes the army liturgically. Like He, he doesn't put archers out front or mortarmen out front. He, you know, he doesn't put the special forces. In. He puts the choir in front. Like have you, I mean, have you, have you ever seen a choir that you would want, like leading the way into battle? No. But, th- but they did. And what happens, God fights for the people. You could see story after story after story like this in Scripture. Let me jump ahead to the New Testament for the sake of time. In the New Testament, we have a similar story in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are being ordered by the civil magistrate not to preach in the name of Jesus. They've been threatened. And and in the next chapter, all of the apostles are going to be beaten for defying this order Let me read, beginning in Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. That was kind of the precipitating event in this unpleasant conversation with the magistrate. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. What a convenient moment for an earthquake, right? Just a coincidence, I'm sure. 
There are no coincidences in the Bible. Are you beginning to see a pattern? God's people pray, and God shakes things up. He brings walls down. He lays waste armies. He emboldens His people. What are they praying? They're praying Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a war psalm. They pray a war psalm about King Jesus when they're opposed by the civil authorities. I might have prayed a little bit differently here. I might have said, Lord, please protect us from the civil magistrate. Lord, please don't let them come and arrest us. Lord, please don't let them come and beat us. Lord, please have mercy upon us. They they said, Lord, give us boldness in the face of their unbelief. And God shakes the place where the church is gathered. Their meeting place shook as God rattled the walls because once again the walls of the city of man are about to fall. This is all through your Bible. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is having his chest and head broken and crushed by rocks and is praying that God would not lay the sin to the charge of those who are murdering him. And God answers that prayer. God answers that prayer. You say, no, he he didn't. Yes, he did. Who was holding the coats? Who was overseeing the execution? What did God do with Saul of Tarsus? He did not lay that sin against him. He laid that sin on Jesus, and he made Saul of Tarsus the apostle Paul. This is what happens when the church prays. Just a few chapters over in Acts chapter 16, I have to show you this one because this is, well... I just love this one. Acts chapter 16, Paul's second preaching journey. He is in the city of Philippi. There is a young woman who is possessed by a demon. She has a spirit of divination. She is fortune-telling with the spirit of Python. And Paul is annoyed because she's following him around and saying, these people are telling you about the true God. You need to listen to them. Even the demons believe and tremble. So Paul casts the demon out of the girl Her masters don't appreciate that. Their business is wrecked now. And so they have Paul and Silas beaten publicly and then thrown into the prison and put in stocks. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. What kind of an earthquake does that? And the keeper of the prison, awakening from from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's exactly what happened. They were all baptized that night. The walls of the city of man fell. The chains of the city of man's dungeon were opened, were loosened, and the heart of that jailer and his family was made new. They were praying and singing hymns to God. Are you seeing a pattern here? What kind of prayers and hymns do you think they were singing? What would you expect the response to be when the church prays and sings? Walls shake, doors open, chains are unlocked, and nations are overthrown by the gospel of grace. The magistrate becomes a man of God. The entire book of Revelation is about this same theme. Let me just show you in two places out of the 22 chapters that illustrate it. 
Chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the voice of living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. You don't realize how many people are in this assembly today. Like you're looking around and you're saying, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, you know. Couple, three, I, I don't know. Some. So I, and, and of course, there are some people online and they might be singing in their living room. And, and yep, there's, there's a few of us. No, no, no. Look at the text. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, that's the grave, and in the sea, that's people. No, it's not people. it's the fish. It's the fish and the spirits that live in the ocean. Because you don't live in a closed mechanical universe, you live in a magical world full of angels and demons. And man is the only part of creation that is foolish enough not to praise God. And when the church is praying and praising on earth, the church is praying everywhere. Everywhere. And what happens when we do? Well, turn the page. Chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets... Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. What happens when the church is praised? The church prays. The prayers ascend like incense before the throne, and God takes fire from the altar and throws it down to the earth. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. When the church prays, heaven answers, and the walls of the city of man crumble and fall. You can see many examples of this theme in church history as well. Let me mention just a few. The Huguenots were French Calvinists during the Reformation. The Genevan Psalter, published in 1562, used by John Calvin and the Huguenot refugee congregation in Geneva, is often referred to as the Huguenot Psalter. And reportedly, the Roman Catholics in France were so disturbed by the psalm singing of the Protestants that they outlawed the singing of certain psalms. Psalm 68, most notably among them. Think about the power of Psalm 68. Let God arise, let His enemies be scattered, let those also who hate Him flee before Him. 
As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds, for His name is Yah. And rejoice before Him. And the Roman Catholic magistrate said, no, no, no. You're not going to sing that psalm in this town. In 1582, a Presbyterian minister in Scotland named John Dury, who had been imprisoned for preaching that had offended the magistrate, perished the thought, returned to Edinburgh after being exiled from the city. As he entered the city, a group of Christians met him, a large crowd that grew enormously as they walked through the town toward the church, singing together Psalm 124. One historian describes it this way, quote, At the nether bow they took up the 124th psalm. Now Israel may say, and that truly, and sang it in such a pleasant tune in all the four parts, these being well known to the people who came up the street bareheaded and singing till they entered the kirk. This had such a sound and majesty as affected themselves and the huge multitude of beholders who looked with admiration and amazement. The duke himself was a witness and tear his beard for anger, being more afraid at this sight than anything he had ever seen since he came to Scotland. The church singing Psalm 124 caused men to tear hair out of their face because they were so terrified at the sight of the church singing those praises. In 1940, when Allied forces were stranded on the northern coast of France, pinned down by the German army, King George VI called for a national day of prayer on Sunday, May 26th. May God raise up such a king in uh, Great Britain again. The nation prayed, and God answered their prayer. During the eight days from May 26th to June 4th, 338,226 Allied soldiers were evacuated from Dunkirk. You thought it was a military miracle. It was not. In the aftermath, June 9th was made a day of thanksgiving, and churches throughout the United Kingdom rang with the words of this same psalm, Psalm 124, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their wrath was kindled against us. And the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And all the churches in England were singing those praises because God had spared 338,000 troops had drawn them out of the trap. The church makes war on the world. The church prays for the walls of the wicked to fall. The church seeks the blessing and protection of God in the face of certain disaster every time she worships in song and prayer. Worship is warfare against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Worship is a powerful weapon. It is a military strategy against the forces of darkness in this world. We do battle in and by worship. Worship is not entertainment. Worship is not therapy. Worship is combat. It is how the church conquers all of her foes. 
Now, since the Psalms have been the primary hymns and prayers of God's people for the last 3,000 years, it's not surprising that this liturgical warfare is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily conducted through singing and praying the Psalter. Not every example that I just gave you explicitly mentions the Psalms. Some of them do. Some of them imply it. But frequently, the Psalms are the book, the prayer book, the hymn book, that is giving the church her words in these moments of prayer and praise. Remember that Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God in Acts chapter 16. What hymns do you suppose they were singing? Do you think it was Jesus is a friend of mine? Or do you think it was Psalm 18? Listen to the words of Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple and my cry came before Him, even to His ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because He was angry. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but those lines are exactly what happened in the jail that night. They cried out in their distress and the earth shook with God's anger. If we are singing the psalms, it won't be long before we begin running into psalms that are quite militaristic. You know, the church on earth is traditionally called the church militant, and for good reason. We are still on the battlefield, we are still in the conflict, and the psalms both remind and equip us for that war. So often the psalms are going to speak in very combative terms that sometimes makes people uncomfortable. I'll simply mention this, by the way. Psalm 144, that we won't take the time to read, says that God trains our hands for war and our fingers for battle. How do you train your fingers for battle? I mean, like eye-poking the enemy or something like that. No, the psalm actually tells you how this happened. Verse 9, by playing a ten-stringed harp. That's that's how you train your fingers for battle. Are your fingers trained for battle? Is your voice trained for battle? Are you participating in battle every day as you, you open up God's Word and you respond to His Word in prayer and in praise? Our Reformed forebears in Europe sang Psalm 68 before and after the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre in which Roman Catholic rulers ordered the assassination of Huguenot leaders and sparked a wave of anti-Calvinistic violence throughout the country in which estimates range between 5,000 and 30,000 Protestants were killed, 3,000 in the city of Paris alone. Now that might be an extreme example, admittedly, but several times already your elders have mentioned this morning uh, persecuted Christians in China. Brethren, that you have fellowship with in their sufferings for whom you are praying. You're praying through the Psalms and you you run across a Psalm and you say, I don't know, I just don't feel that one today. Interesting, but irrelevant. Where did you get the idea that your prayers are primarily about you? When did you get the idea that your prayer time is primarily for your benefit or even for the benefit of the people in your congregation? The church is praying together throughout the world, and not just this world, but in heaven above. We are united to that glorified assembly. This is the communion of the saints. And the martyrs under the altar in heaven are saying, How long, O Lord, holy and righteous, until you judge and avenge our blood? And if their blood has been avenged, there's a lot of other blood that's been shed since that has not yet been. Right now, Christians in China and North Africa are in prison. Churches in China have been raided and sacked. Missionaries in some parts of the world regularly risk their lives to carry the gospel into closed countries. 
If you think that it is easy to get along in the world as a Christian, if you think everything will be fine if you just mind your own business and do what the government tells you to do, then you are demonstrating a lack of historical awareness, a lack of global awareness, and a lack of familiarity with your Bible. Persecution and adversity is not limited to violent episodes either. In other places, civil authorities have closed churches. We're familiar with this in the last couple of years, aren't we? In Edmonton, they literally fenced off and confiscated a church building in the name of public health. And when that happened, Christians on Twitter mocked the congregation and blamed them for losing their property by failing to abide by public health guidelines. God have mercy on us. It's okay to disagree with a congregation's decision to meet at full capacity and sing without masks. If, if, you, if you don't think that's a smart idea, that's perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. You could say, I, I, maybe they should have done that differently. Okay, fine. whatever. We have a conversation about that. But let me tell you, scoffers who mock God's people when they are being opposed by unbelieving magistrates are saying a lot more about themselves than they are the people that they are ridiculing. After the Roe decision in 1973, our government sanctioned the slaughter of approximately 62 million unborn children. That is more than 10 times the number of Jews usually cited as murdered by the Third Reich, and it is roughly six times more than even the highest estimates of Jewish lives lost during the Holocaust. And despite of that, many Christians are uncomfortable when they come to imprecatory psalms. <laughs> Psalm 94, O God of vengeance, rise up. This is not consistent with a Christian ethic. Really? It's interesting that you find those imprecatory prayers in the law, the books of history, the Psalms, the prophets, the Gospels in the mouth of Jesus, in the book of Acts, in the mouth of the church, in the apostolic epistles, and throughout the book of Revelation. It's kind of curious how it permeates the entire canon of Scripture. Now, I'm not suggesting that abortion is the primary thing that we ought to be thinking about when we sing and pray those kind of psalms. I would even go so far as to say that as great and evil as abortion is, it is not the worst evil against which we ought to be praying. But it baffles me. It, it genuinely baffles me that we can read of churches being shuttered, Christians being murdered, innocent people being abused and tortured, unborn children being torn apart in the womb and vacuumed out, and remain squeamish about praying for God, the God of justice to bring righteous judgment on this world. What is wrong with us? The church on earth is and must be the church militant. The saints are at war, but many well-believing believers, well-meaning believers, have misunderstood the nature of that war and the foes that we are fighting in it. The war is not with liberals and conservatives. It is not with actors and agents in the culture war on the right or the left. The battle involves some of those individuals, no doubt. It includes those who are corrupting the church and contaminating the world and seeking ungodly control of it. But these are only the visible signs of an invisible conflict. Let me remind you of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You are doing battle with demons. And do you know how you're doing that? By praying and praising God. By shouting, for Yahweh has given you the city. We are to be armed with the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6. But notice in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 that he says, 
praying at all times with perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Don't forget that prayer is the primary way that you exercise that warfare. We must not mistake the nature of this war or the means by which it is fought. We are watching our society right now becoming increasingly angry and hateful and violent, and that is true, unfortunately, on the left and the right. And we have to be prepared to say, as was said in the book of Hosea, you remember, Lo Ami, it's a good Hebrew name for you to remember, Lo Ami, these are not my people. These are not my people. We may have common concerns with many of those who are fighting that culture war, but we also have to recognize that we belong to a different society and are fighting here at a different level. Paul says, though we war in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're walking and living and participating in this fleshly environment, but we don't make war on the same terms as the unbelievers do. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. If you misunderstand who, what, and how you are fighting, you will become increasingly agitated and angry and discouraged. And the truth is we don't need more angry Christians, especially on social media right now. We need more Christians who understand the times and who are committed to fighting the battle in the right way. And that does not mean cultural disengagement. Please don't hear me saying that. But it means that the first... And primary engagement is what you're doing right now. It's as a church gathering together and praying to the God of justice and praising the Lord who is the King of all nations. The world will be one with the gospel by the prayers and obedience of the saints, by the living faith and faithful witness of a working and growing church. The war can only be won by Christ and it has been and it will be. He crushed the head of the serpent in his death and resurrection. And Scripture promises, Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And God's Word is our weapon in that battle. It overcomes lies, it changes hearts, it saves sinners, it equips and empowers saints. Praying the same Word breaks down the walls of the city of man and causes the demons to tremble. The world will be changed, and it will be changed by the gospel. Christ's church will persevere, and it will prevail. And that is what you will continually be reminded of as you are praying and singing the Psalms. And it's not just the Psalms. It's good theological hymns. And it's praying passages of Scripture. It's singing the song of Zechariah that we sang this morning and knowing these things are true. These things are true, and they're more true than the things that you see on the news. James says, James chapter 5 and verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Those two are not as different as you might imagine. Because the way that you pray, biblically and historically, is by praying the psalms. And so whether you are suffering, or you are cheerful, or you are cheerfully suffering, you're going to find yourself in the psalms all the time. And you are a priest. So the Bible says... But you're a warrior priest. You're a member of the choir. But you're a part of that choir that goes in front of the army, not behind them. 
Many Christian traditions, both ancient and modern, sang the entire Psalter in prayer to God every week or every two weeks. The Book of Common Prayer simplified that structure, divided up into morning and evening readings every 30 days. And yet, sadly, as many of you can probably testify, I know many members of our congregation, until they came to our church, they never even heard about praying the Psalms. They never even thought about praying the Psalms. Nobody ever suggested to them that there might be a way to pray like that. Like Paul and Silas imprisoned in Philippi, the church on earth is to fight injustice and endure suffering and advance God's kingdom through sung prayer. And when you don't have the words to be able to do that and you don't trust your own heart to be able to formulate that, the good news is that God gave you a prayer book to teach you how to do it. These are the war chants of King Jesus. Augustine talked about the totus Christus, this whole Christ idea. Wherever the head goes, the body follows. Christ is praying the Psalms. He's singing the Psalms. As the King, He's administering the Psalms through His body on earth and in heaven above. If we build our lives around prayer and worship and the people of God, and if we structure that life of prayer largely around the Psalms, then we will not be bitter and angry and despairing. Rather, we will have a cheerful militancy, a happy and hopeful outlook as we contend against the forces of darkness in this world. We will remember that the battle belongs to the Lord and the victory is His, not ours, to win. We will know that the outcome is not in doubt. We will experience hard times. We may not live to see the glorious nature of whatever God intends to do next, but we will see the final glory of Christ's consummated kingdom. And that is enough. It is more than enough to sustain us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together. Gracious God and Father, O Lord, You are the God of justice, the Maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of all creation. You have enthroned Your Son, Your incarnate Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, on Mount Zion. And He rules over all. O God, fill us with that courage to know that we are called to be a praying people, and to participate in the great work and in the great victory of your kingdom and your authority. O Lord, save your church, preserve your church, and bless your church with comfort and joy forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.